Section 18 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Thomas Jefferson, Part 3. As Vice President, Burr was marked for his political intrigues, and incurred the distrust, if not the hostility, of Jefferson, who neglected Burr's friends and bestowed political favors on his enemies. Disgusted with the inactivity to which his office doomed him, Burr pulled every wire to be elected governor of New York, but the opposition of the great Democratic families caused his defeat, which was soon followed by his assassination of Hamilton, called a duel. Universal execration for this hideous crime drove him for a time from New York, although he was still vice president. But his political career was ended, although his ambition was undiminished. Then, seeing that his influence in the eastern and middle states was hopelessly lost, Burr looked for a theater of new cabals, and turned his eyes to the west, opened to public view by the purchase of Louisiana. In the preparation of his plans he went first to New Orleans, then a French settlement, where he was lionized, returning by way of Nashville, Frankfurt, Lexington, and St. Louis. At the latter post he found General Wilkinson, to whom he communicated his scheme of founding an empire in the west a most desperate undertaking. On an island of the Ohio, near Marietta, he visited its owner, called Blennerhassett, a restless and worthless Irishman whom he induced to follow his fortunes. The adventurers contracted for fifteen boats and enlisted quite a number of people to descend the Mississippi and make New Orleans their rallying point, supposing that the western population were dissatisfied with the government and were ready to secede and establish a new republic or empire to include Mexico, also relying on the aid of General Wilkinson at St. Louis. But they miscalculated. Wilkinson was true to his colors, the people whom they had seduced gradually dropped off, the territorial magistrates became suspicious and alarmed, and the governor of the territory communicated his fears to the president, who at once issued a proclamation to arrest the supposed conspirators who had fled when their enterprise had failed. Burr was seized near Natchez, and was tried for conspiracy. But the trial came to nothing. He contrived to escape in the night, but was again arrested in Alabama, and sent to Richmond to be tried for treason. As has been said, he was acquitted, by a jury of which John Randolph was the foreman, with the sympathy of all the women, of whom he was a favorite to the day of his death. The trial lasted six months, and Jefferson did all he could to convict him, with the assistance of William Wirt, just rising into notice. Although acquitted, Burr was a ruined man. His day of receptions and popularity was over. His sad but splendid career came to an inglorious close. Feeling unsafe in his own country, he wandered abroad, at times treated with great distinction wherever he went, but always arousing suspicions. He was obliged to leave England and wandered as a fugitive from country to country without money or real friends. At Paris and London he suffered extreme poverty, although admired in society. At last he returned to New York, utterly destitute, and resumed the practice of the law, but was without social position, and generally avoided. He succeeded in 1832 in winning the hand of a wealthy widow, but he spent her money so freely that she left him. After the separation he supported himself with great difficulty, but retained his elegant manner and fascinating conversation, until he died in the house of a lady friend in 1836, and was buried at Princeton by the side of his father and grandfather. Our history narrates no fall from an exalted position more melancholy or more richly deserved than his. Without being dissipated, he was a bad and unprincipled man from the start. 
he might have been the pride of his country like hamilton and jefferson being the equal of both in abilities and at one time in popularity the school books have given to him and to benedict arnold an infamous immortality comparing the one with cain and the other with judas iscariot the most important measure connected with jefferson's long administration was the non-importation act commonly called the embargo it proved in the end a mistake and shed no glory on the fame of the president and yet perhaps it prevented a war or at least delayed it the peace of 1783 and the acknowledgment of american independence did not restore friendly relations between england and the united states it was not in human nature that a proud and powerful state like england should see the disruption of her empire and her fairest foreign possession torn from her without embittered feelings leading to acts which could not be justified by international law or by enlightened reason accordingly the government of great britain treated the american envoys with rudeness insolence and contempt much to their chagrin and the indignation of americans generally it also adopted measures exceedingly injurious to american commerce france and england being at war the americans as neutrals secured most of the carrying trade to the disgust of british merchants and declaring mutual blockade both french and english cruisers began to capture american trading ships the english being especially outrageous in their doings said jefferson in his annual message in eighteen o five our coasts have been infested and our harbors watched by private armed vessels they have captured in the very entrance of our harbors as well as on the high seas not only the vessels of our friends coming to trade with us but our own also they have carried them off under pretense of legal adjudication but not daring to approach a court of justice they have plundered and sunk them by the way or in obscure places where no evidence could arise against them maltreated the crews and abandoned them in boats in the open sea or on desert shores without food or covering in view of these things the president recommended the building of gunboats and the reorganization of the militia and called attention to materials in the navy yards for constructing battleships the english even went further and set up a claim to the right of search sailors were taken from american ships to be impressed into their naval service on the plea generally unfounded that they were british subjects and deserters at last british audacity went so far as to attack an american frigate at hampton roads and carry away four alleged british sailors three of whom were american-born the english doctrine that no man could expatriate himself was not allowed by america where immigrants and new citizens were always welcome but in the case of native americans there could be no question as to their citizenship this outrage aroused indignation from one end of the country to the other and a large party clamored for war but the policy of jefferson was pacific he abhorred war and entered into negotiations which came to nothing nor to his mind was the country prepared for war we had neither army nor navy to speak of it was plain that we should be beaten on the land and on the sea much as he hated england he preferred to temporize and build a few gunboats which everybody laughed at nor did the french government behave much better than the english it looked upon the united states as an unsettled and weak country to be robbed with impunity at last driven from the high seas the americans could rely only on the coasting trade one half of the mercantile world was sealed up by the british and the other half by the french Jefferson now appealed to Congress, and the result was the Non-Importation Act, or Embargo, forbidding Americans to trade with France and England. This policy was intended as a pressure on English merchants, but it was a half-measure and did not affect British legislation, which had for its object the utter annihilation of American commerce. Neither France nor England was hurt seriously by the embargo, while our ships lay rotting at the wharves, and our merchants found that their occupation was gone. 
the new england merchants were discouraged and discontented it was not they who wished to see their ships shut up by a doubtful policy they would have preferred to run risks rather than be idle but jefferson paid no heed to their grumblings feeling that he was exhibiting to foreign powers unusual forbearance it is singular that he persevered in a policy that nearly the whole body of merchants censured and regarded as a failure but he did and congress was subservient to his decrees no succeeding president ever had the influence over congress that he had he was almost a dictator he found opposition only among the federalists whose power was gone forever at last when the farmers and planters joined with the shipping interests in complaining of the embargo jefferson was persuaded that it was a failure and three days before his administration closed it was repealed by congress but even this measure did not hurt the party which he had marshaled with such transcendent tact for his friend and disciple james madison was elected to succeed him in eighteen o nine the embargo had had one result it deferred the war with great britain to the next administration that conflict of eighteen twelve to fifteen was not a glorious war for america except on the ocean it was not entered upon by the british with any hope of the conquest of the country but to do all the harm they could to the people who had achieved their independence on the part of the united states it was simply a choice between insult insolence and injury on the one hand and on the other the expenditure of money and loss of life which would bear as hard on england as on the united states both parties at last wearied of a contest which promised no permanent settlement of interests or principles the federalists deprecated it from the beginning the republican democracy sustained it from the instinct of national honor probably it could not have been avoided without the surrender of national dignity it was the last of our wars with great britain future difficulties will doubtless be settled by arbitration or not settled at all in spite of mutual ill-will england and america cannot afford to fight our late civil war demonstrated this when with all the ill-feeling between the two nations war was adverted the interests of trade may mollify and soften international jealousies but only forbearance and the cultivation of mutual and common interests can eradicate the sentiments of mutual dislike however it was not the embargo nor the meditated treason of aaron burr nor the purchase of louisiana important as these were which gives chief interest to the eight years of jefferson's administration and made it a political epoch it was the firm growth and establishment of the democratic party of which jefferson was the father and leader as hamilton was the great chieftain of the federalist with the accession of jefferson to power a new policy was inaugurated which from his day has been the policy of the government except in great financial emergencies when men of brain have had the direction of public affairs democratic leaders like jackson and van buren representing the passions or interests or prejudices of the masses it would seem have been generally unfortunate enough to lead the country into financial difficulties because they have conformed to the unenlightened instincts of the people rather than to the opinions of the enlightened few great merchants capitalists and statesmen that is men of experience and ability and when these men of brain have extricated the country from the financial distress which men inexperienced in finance and ignorant of the principles of political economy have brought about the democratic leaders have regained their political ascendancy since they appealed more than their antagonists to those watchwords so dear to the american heart the abolition of monopolies unequal taxation the exaltation of the laboring classes whatever promises to aggrandize the nation in a material point of view or professes to bring about the reign of liberty fraternity and equality and the abolition of social distinctions it cannot be doubted that the policy of jefferson while it appealed to the rights and interests of working men of men who labor with their hands rather than by their brains has favored the reign of demagogues the great curse of american institutions who now rule the cities of new york philadelphia boston cincinnati and chicago is it not those who in cities at least have made self-government the great principle for which jefferson contended almost an impossibility 
This great statesman was sufficiently astute to predict the rule of the majority for generations to come, but I doubt if he anticipated the character of the men to whom the majority would delegate their power. Here he was not so sagacious as his great political rivals. I believe that if he could have foreseen what a miserable set the politicians would generally turn out to be, with their venality, their unscrupulousness, their vile flatteries of the people, their system of spoils, their indifference to the higher interests of the nation, his faith in democracy as a form of government would have been essentially shaken. He himself was no demagogue. His error was in not foreseeing the logical sequence of those abstract theories which made up his political religion, the religion of humanity, such as the French philosophers had taught him. But his theories pleased the people, and he himself was personally popular, the most so of all our statesmen, not excepting Henry Clay, who made many enemies. Jefferson's manners were simple, his dress was plain, he was accessible to everybody, he was boundless in his hospitalities, he cared little for money, his opinions were liberal and progressive, he avoided quarrels, he had but few prejudices, he was kind and generous to the poor and unfortunate, he exalted agricultural life, he hated artificial splendor, and all shams and lies. In his morals he was irreproachable, unlike Hamilton and Burr. He never made himself ridiculous, like John Adams, by egotism, vanity, and jealousy. He was the most domestic of men, worshipped by his family and admired by his guest, always ready to communicate knowledge, strong in his convictions, perpetually writing his sincere sentiments and beliefs in letters to his friends, as upright and honest a man as ever filled a public station, and finally retiring to private life with the respect of the whole nation over which he continued to exercise influence after he had parted with power. And when he found himself poor and embarrassed in consequence of his unwise hospitality, he sold his library, the best in the country, to pay his debts, as well as the most valuable part of his estate, yet keeping up his cheerfulness and serenity of temper, and rejoicing in the general prosperity, which was produced by the ever-expanding energies and resources of a great country, rather than by the political theories which he advocated with so much ability. On his final retirement to Monticello, in 1809, after 44 years of continuous public service, Jefferson devoted himself chiefly to the care of his estate, which had been much neglected during his presidential career. To his surprise, he found himself in debt, having lived beyond his income while president. But he did not essentially change his manner of living, which was generous, though neither luxurious nor ostentatious. He had stalls for 36 horses, and sometimes as many as 50 guests at dinner. There was no tavern near him which had so much company. He complains that an ox would all be eaten in two days, while a load of hay would disappear in a night. Fond as he was of company, he would not allow his guests to rob him of the hours he devoted to work, either in his library or on his grounds. His correspondence was enormous. He received 1,607 letters in one year, and answered most of them. After his death, there were copies of 16,000 letters which he had written. His industry was marvelous. Even in retirement, he was always writing or reading or doing something. He was, perhaps, excessively fond of his garden, of his flowers, of his groves, and his walks. Music was, as he himself said, the favorite passion of his soul. His house was the largest in Virginia, and this was filled with works of art and the presents he had received. But his financial difficulties increased from year to year. He was too fond of experiments and fancy improvements to be practically successful as a farmer. One of his granddaughters writes thus of him, I cannot describe the feelings of veneration, admiration, and love that existed in my heart for him. I looked upon him as a being too great and too good for my comprehension. I never heard him utter a harsh word to any one of us. On winter evenings, as we sat round the fire, he taught us games and would play them with us. He reproved without wounding us and commended without making us vain. His nature was so eminently sympathetic that with those he loved he could enter into their feelings, anticipate their wishes, gratify their tastes, and surround them with an atmosphere of affection. Thus did he live in his plain but beautiful house, 
in sight of the Blue Ridge, with Charlottesville and the University at his feet. He rode daily for ten miles until he was eighty-two. He died July 4, 1826, full of honors, and everywhere funeral orations were delivered to his memory, the best of which was by Daniel Webster in Boston. Among his papers was found the inscription which he wished to have engraved on his tomb. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. He does not allude to his honors or his offices, not a word about his diplomatic career or of his stations as Governor of Virginia, Secretary of State, or President of the United States. But the three things he does name enshrine the best convictions of his life and the substance of his labors in behalf of his country, political independence, religious freedom, and popular education. The fame of Jefferson as author of the Declaration of Independence is more than supported by his writings at different times which bear on American freedom and the rights of man. It is as a writer on political liberty that he is most distinguished. He was not an orator or speechmaker. He worked in his library among his books, meditating on the great principles which he enforced with so much lucidity and power. It was for his skill with the pen that he was selected to draft the immortal charter of American freedom, which endeared him to the hearts of the people, and which no doubt contributed largely to cement the states together in their resistance to Great Britain. His reference to the statute of Virginia in favor of religious freedom illustrates another of his leading sentiments, to which he clung with an undeviating tenacity during his whole career. He may have been a freethinker like Franklin, but he did not make war on the religious beliefs of mankind. He only desired that everybody should be free to adopt such religious principles as were dear to him, without hindrance or molestation. He was wise before his age and liberality of mind, and he ought not to be stigmatized as an infidel for his wise toleration. Although his views were far from orthodox, they did not, after all, greatly differ from those of John Adams himself and the men of the day who were enamored with the ideas of Voltaire and Rousseau. At that time, even the most influential of the clergy, especially in New England, were Arminians in their religious creed. The 18th century was not a profound or religious epoch. It was an age of war and political agitations, a drinking, swearing, licentious, godless age among the leaders of society, and of ignorance, prejudice, and pharisaic formalities among the people. Jefferson's own purity and uprightness of life amid the laxity of the times is an unquestionable evidence of the elevation of his character and the sincerity of his morals and religious beliefs. The third great object of Jefferson's life was to promote popular education as an essential condition to the safety of the Republic. While he advocated unbounded liberty, he knew well enough that it would degenerate into license unless the people were well informed. But what interested him the most was the University of Virginia, in whose behalf he spent the best part of his declining years. He gave money freely himself, and induced the legislation to endow it liberally. He superintended the construction of the buildings, which alone cost 300000 He selected the professors, prescribed the course of study, and was chairman of the board of trustees, and looked after the interests of the institution. He thought more of those branches of knowledge which tended to liberalize the mind than of Latin and Greek. He gave a practical direction to the studies of the young men, allowing them to select such branches as were congenial to them and would fit them for a useful life. He would have no president, but gave the management of all details to the professors, who were equal in rank. He appealed to the highest motives among the students, and recognized them as gentlemen rather than boys, allowing no espionage. He was rigorous in the examinations of the students, and no one could obtain a degree unless it were deserved. While he did not exclude religion from the college, morning prayers being held every day, attendance upon religious services was not obligatory. Every Sunday some clergyman from the town or neighborhood preached a sermon which was generally well attended. Few colleges in this country have been more successful or more ably conducted, and the excellence of instruction drew students from every quarter of the South. 
before the war there were nearly seven hundred students and i never saw a more enthusiastic set of young men or a set who desired knowledge for the sake of knowledge more enthusiastically than did those in the university of virginia although it is universally admitted that jefferson had a broad original and powerful intellect that he stamped his mind on the institutions of his country that to no one except washington is the country more indebted yet i fail to see that he was transcendently great in anything he was a good lawyer a wise legislator an able diplomatist a clear writer and an excellent president but in none of the spheres he occupied did he reach the most exalted height as a lawyer he was surpassed by adams burr and marshall as an orator he was nothing at all as a writer he was not equal to hamilton and madison in profundity and power as a diplomatist he was far below franklin and even jay in tact in patience and in skill as a governor he was timid and vacillating while as a president he is not to be compared with washington for dignity for wisdom for consistency or executive ability yet on the whole he has left a great name for giving shape to the institutions of his country and for intense patriotism preeminent in no single direction he was in the main the greatest political genius that has been elevated to the presidential chair but perhaps greater as a politician than as a statesman in the sense that pitt canning and peel were statesmen he was not made for active life he was rather a philosopher wielding power by his pen casting a searching glance into everything and leading men by his amiability his sympathetic nature his force of character and his enlightened mind the question might arise whether jefferson's greatness was owing to force of circumstances or to an original creative intellect like that of franklin or alexander hamilton but for the revolution he might never have been heard of outside his native state this however might be said of most of the men who have figured in american history possibly of washington himself the great rulers of the world seem to be raised up by almighty power through peculiar training to a peculiar fitness for the accomplishment of certain ends which they themselves did not foresee men like abraham lincoln who was not that sort of man whom henry clay or daniel webster would probably have selected for the guidance of this mighty nation in the greatest crisis of its history authorities the life of jefferson by parton is the most interesting that i have read in the fullest but not artistic he introduces much superfluous matter that had better be left out as for other lives of jefferson that by morse is the best that of scholar is of especial interest as to jefferson's attitude towards slavery and popular education randall has written an interesting sketch for the rest i would recommend the same authorities as on john adams in the previous chapter end of section eighteen